Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 122. Psalm 122 is one of the songs of ascent. And as I was thinking about that from a context uh, this week, uh, it brought to mind a couple of things. One is just thinking about it. Song of ascent simply means these are the so- one of the songs that those who were uh, on pilgrimage on their way to Jerusalem to worship, these were the songs they would sing in preparation for worship. In other words, they were worshiping on their way to worship. Families would gather, parents would teach their children these songs, and they would sing them as they were making their journey to Jerusalem. And then just as a side note, while you're still looking, I just uh, reminded me of, of even in our own congregation, it came to my attention that some of our, I want to say particularly to the parents of young children, that a few of you have kind of indicated feeling bad when your kids are sometimes speaking, talking, perhaps like when Mark was praying, I'm going to tell you that's music to my ears. And the reason it's music to my ears is because it's also music to Jesus' ears. And so I don't want you to feel bad. Jesus was very clear about that. When his disciples at one time were playing the W.C. Fields, you know, go away, kid, you bother me. Um, Jesus says, suffer the little children. And woe to anyone who keeps those children from coming to me. And so while we do have a nursery and we have other things that you are welcome to avail yourself of, we are delighted to hear the voices of children. I think anybody who loves Jesus would have to be delighted to hear the voices of children in worship. And so please do not feel bad. And I have particular sensitivity because my wife was a single mother for the raising of all of our children. And so our children benefited from the whole congregation because other than on one occasion where I stopped in the middle of my sermon and told her to take them out... um, It's the love and the encouragement of others in the congregation when my kids were being kids that have made them love the Lord now. My son uh, now has just been hired as the youth pastor of a church, and so they're walking with him even still. And it's not because of any greatness in us. It's because of the love of God's people. And so, again, parents, if your kids talk, the pastor that was my pastor when I was in college, I remember him saying vividly when the kids were talking, that's why they give me the microphone. So if the kids are out louder, Larry will just turn me, turn me up. So uh, we're set. All right, commercial aside, uh, let's come to Psalm 122, the text that God has given to us today. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. May the Lord give us understanding from his word. Let's go to him that he might speak to us. Our Father, we do come, uh, and having read your word and committing ourselves to taking this time to study your word, we also who have known you, also who know your word, know that our study is in vain unless you speak to us. For simple knowledge is not what you desire, but for the very words that you have inspired to take root from our minds into our hearts and express through the way that we live, Lord, may you 
make this a truly living word that not only feeds our souls, but changes our lives and shapes us that we might become more like Christ. We pray today that it would be particularly as you address our attitude and our actions through the content of this passage that we might realize yet anew how great is your love for us because you have given us your word. I pray this for our benefit and to your glory and praise in the name of Christ who is himself the living word. Amen. Well, I'll say with all due respect to Hamlet, to go or not to go, that's the question. At least that's the question that every one of you had to ask yourselves this morning. And clearly the answer that all of you gave was to go, uh, because you're here. I can figure out those things pretty, pretty easily. But many people made a different decision. Studies tell us consistently that about 35% or just under 35% of Americans will go to any kind of a worship service this weekend, and that doesn't take into consideration whether the service is faithful to their, to their own religion, much less faithful to Christ himself. But on any given weekend, you have roughly one-third of the people, the population, that will attend any kind of a worship service. Another study that's come out recently has indicated something that I guess uh, most people probably have recognized, but the vast majority of churches, evangelical and mainline alike in our country, will never see more than 50% of their own membership showing up on any given Sunday. The roles are uh, people on the rolls. Now, in some of those churches, the people on the rolls have an excuse. They're dead, and they should have been removed long ago uh, from the rolls. And so it does, deadness does inhibit your ability to get places, but... Whatever number they declare that they have, only about half of that. Now, that's not an issue for us, at least not uh, to that degree, but it is a very common, uh, common situation. And the issue is just many people, I guess apparently from statistically speaking, most feel very busy, and life is very busy, and there's a lot of other things that they feel that they need to engage in or that they feel they need to uh, participate in or where they feel that they will be better served than by being engaged in their faith community. It's just, for whatever reason, not a priority of their lives. Now, Psalm 122 is written by a man. Most scholars attribute it to David. Man after God's own heart, according to the Scriptures, meaning someone who loved God and, and, who seemed to, and who was loved by God. But Psalm 122, whether David or somebody else, is written by somebody who clearly loves the Lord. What strikes me when I read this, particularly in verse 1, is the attitude. I mean, just listen again to this man's heart. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Or as the NIV says, I rejoiced with those who said, let us go to the house of the Lord. I mean, the guy was excited about going to the house of the Lord. Now, I know that's not everybody's experience. And it's, frankly, not even always my experience. Nor, I suspect, is it all of your experience. Certainly not always. And we not, may, perhaps not even always David's, as again, who I assume to be the writer of this psalm. It may not have been his experience that he was always excited about going to the house of the Lord. But in this occasion, 
David was excited when somebody made the suggestion, let's go to church. And in this psalm, David reminds us that there is good reason to look forward to going to church or going to God's house for worship. Before we dig into the text, one of the things I want to do is to, as we look at those reasons that David seems to reveal to us, I want to kind of explain what we're going to do and how we're going to look at this text because this is a text that can be used in a couple of different ways. I'm indebted to the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce as he was commenting on this psalm. He made this point. This psalm may be looked at in three very different ways, all with good biblical warrant. Literally, this is about earthly Jerusalem. Symbolically, it can be applied to the church as the writer of Hebrews applies it, specifically in chapter 12. And prophetically, Psalm 122 can direct our thinking to the new Jerusalem of which the earthly city is but an incomplete type. And so what Boyce points out, which some of you may have known or certainly um, I, as I certainly want you to know, is that there are a number of appropriate ways to apply this one particular text. And so some of you who read this or are familiar with this and perhaps come from a particular background, especially with current events that are going on in the world and in the Middle East, would look at this and hope that I'm going to talk about the church's relationship and responsibility to, to Israel. That's a very valid desire. That's just not my intent this morning. Um, and so it's a, certainly a, a legitimate discussion, and we'll perhaps do that another time. But that's not my focus. Our focus really this morning is going to be on the other two aspects. Rather than dealing with, uh, with world uh, issues this morning, I want to deal more in terms of our, our personal spiritual formation, dealing with how this relates to the church, to us who are part of the church, and then how this focuses our attention uh, to the church that is to come, or the new Jerusalem, the city of God, uh, that we who are in the church, we who are part of Christ, all are a part of. And so just so that we're clear about that, so that I get fewer emails this week for missing certain things, especially in light of the current events, I just want to make sure that we're clear about that. But we want to focus on, again, this morning is, David is excited about going to church and some of us are certainly wondering why. There's a couple of things that we reveal. The first thing I think as we look at this text, we realize that David had a sense of expectation. And we get that somewhat from verse 2, as, but also need a little bit of imagination. But as, well, at the second, uh, as, um, as David says in verse 2, our feet are, have, been, have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now, David, as he said, he was glad to have his feet standing within Jerusalem. And if you think about it, that's, it should tell us something. Because see, David lived in Jerusalem, so it wasn't like he was vacationing. It wasn't like he was going someplace new. It wasn't someplace that he was unfamiliar with. He wasn't making a pilgrimage, as some others might have. He lived there. He lived in the palace. Jerusalem was the city that was the center of both the government and the spiritual worship dimension of the, of the Hebrew culture. And David, as he's standing there, is saying he's glad when somebody said, let's go to the house of the Lord. And then he starts talking about Jerusalem. And so there is some connection, and we have to be thinking about what is it in David's mind, the one who lives there. And so using our imagination, I, I really, and as we look down a little bit further at times too, particularly when he talks about his purpose or what's going on there, we realize that David has some sort of expectation, something out of his ordinary day-to-day -day or moment-by-moment -moment experience that he's looking forward to having. 
And I suspect it's because David has an expectation that he is going to encounter God in worship. Now, part of the reason I say that as we look into this text, he says uh, later on in, in this passage um, in verse 4 that you know, it was decreed for Israel to give thanks in the name of the Lord. That's the aspect of worship that he's describing. Now, to give thanks, it's not just to go through the motions of giving thanks. David's expecting to give thanks because he's aware of his need to give thanks. He's aware of what God has done for him. He's also aware of God's promises. David is expecting to encounter God in worship. You know, one of the things that some of you might say is, well, of course. But experiencing God in worship is not the experience of most. At least not of pollster George Barna is to be believed as he has done his studies and interviewed a number of people, those that fall in the category of evangelical Christians. He says that the majority of them have said that they have never, the majority of us have said that they have never felt the presence of God, never experienced the presence of God in worship. And then when you add to the number that have never, and to those that he says a significant number, have said they have, but it's been a long, long time. And so the vast majority, even in evangelical churches, while they are perhaps committed to being in church, come to church without having the experience and therefore most without the expectation that they are going to experience the presence of God or to engage God. And it only makes sense because when you've experienced something over and over again and yet there's something that's absent, you don't usually go expecting more of it. Now, while most of you probably don't care, as I watch the University of Tennessee football team uh, play this fall, I'm looking forward to a new season, but I have almost no expectations in most of the good games that they are going to win. Why? Because about 10 years of they haven't won and the, and the games that matter. And so I'm going to go. I mean, I'm going to at least watch. I'll participate in that way. I'm going to hope. I have some level of hope, but there is no expectation on my part. Just the hope increases as it seems like there's an opportunity. Now, some of you have that same experience, whether it's for your teams or whether it's from, you know, movies by directors that you like, whatever it's been that you, you go, and it just, you may enjoy it, but it just something is lacking. You just no longer have that expectation, and I suspect that's the reality for many Christians who go to church faithfully, who love the Lord, who remind, are reminded that God loves them, but when you come to worship, you're just not experiencing the presence of God. And so you don't expect to experience the presence of God. Now, there is one obvious problem with the illustrations that I just used. Although the problem with the illustration also is pertinent for us. The problem is that both of the illustrations I used have everything to do with entertainment whether it's a movie or a play or something like that, that's just a matter of we, we benefit, we, we enjoy it most when we have had our entertainment uh, level met, expectations met. And even the same is true with athletics. It's, sorry people, it's for entertainment purposes only. If you're on the team, perhaps that's different, but for those of us and, uh, who have long ago put that behind us, it exists for entertainment and entertainment only. And so that's a clear problem with applying the issue of our entertainment factor to expectations in the church. 
But the reason it's pertinent because the vast majority of people who are going to church are measuring their experience and their expectation by an entertainment grid. And so if the music is wonderful and the speaker is good looking, which you're blessed to have here, uh, I'm in with Camper, um, and uh, then it might be okay. But more and more people are saying, I can get better music at the symphony. I can get better, better drama on Netflix. And they're confusing entertainment with something far greater, which is the presence of God. There are others who don't expect to meet God when they come to worship just because, well, you've heard the words. Perhaps you grew up in a tradition where it wasn't really encouraged. The issue was, you're here. You put in your time. You went through the ritual. And now you have the rest of your week and come on back and do it again. And I guess there's something to be commended for the diligence and the discipline and the, and the faithfulness to observe the duty, but God says that there's so much more, and David seems to understand that. Because simply going through your duty is not something that's going to make you rejoice and delight. And David says, when somebody says, let's go to church, I was excited, I am delighted. And it's because David understood the promises of God. I want to be clear, I'm not suggesting religious fanaticism or Christian weird people who are just every moment act as if they are antennas that are just feeling the presence of God. We're not created in that way. We are to recognize God in all ways, but in our brokenness we don't. What I am saying is that we are a people who have reason to expect, not because our worship is based on our commitment, but because our worship, as David understood, is based on the promises of God. And so when David said, I rejoiced, we need to realize the first thing he's telling us is that there is a reason for expectation of something greater than mere entertainment when we come into the house of God. David says secondly to us is that the coming to the house of God is something that brings him joy because it's a place where he senses belonging, where he feels that he belongs. We see that in a couple of different places. One, I mean, you see it in just the, the, the plural, the way that he begins this thing. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So he's not, this is not just something that he's going to go do privately and on his own. Certainly he does. But there was something great in his expectation of going to the house of the Lord with other people who are rejoicing or who are delighting or who are seeking God. And he was excited when they invited him and said, let us go. And they were going to go with him. And we see the plurality of it later on in, the, in a couple of key words that we, in, in the text in verses 3 and 4. Because in verse uh, 3, as he begins talking about Jerusalem, he says, built as a city that is bound firmly together. If you have an NIV, it says that is thoroughly compacted. Now, compacted, when I was studying the NIV, that used to be a little bit confusing because I'm not sure that that's really the most attractive thing I'm looking for in a city because I tend to think of like trash compactors. But, uh, and, but, but what David is saying is something that is really beautiful. Now, in one sense, the city was a small city when he was the king. It was probably about three-quarters of a mile from one end to the other. But David's not talking here about the, the buildings, per se. Or if they are, it's not the buildings that is his priority. It's the people who are cl- closely knit together. 
In other words, the people in this small city have to live in close proximity to one another. What he's talking about here is things that are being held together, is what most word scholars say, that he's talking about and celebrating kind of the, the coming together, the becoming, the sense of oneness that happens when people are kind of crowded in and pushed together, compacted. And then we see another aspect when he talks about the tribes. It's a place where the tribes go up. And he says, so we have an essence, and certainly David would have in mind the 12 tribes of Israel. Each of the tribes would be making their pilgrimage, coming into the city. And David is celebrating something that is true about the church, or should be true about the church. Because when he talks about it from the tribe standpoint, and not just of Israel, but he just talks about the tribes come up, he's saying that there is a diversity, because each of the tribes, they had some level of difference from one another. In fact, it was those differences that caused them to bicker with one another from time to time, and, it, and at times kind of undermined and... Uh, they acted like family, like, you know, 10-year-old brothers. Uh, they w- didn't get along, but they knew that they belonged together. And yet they would go to the house of God together. And when they came together, David was saying something very beautiful takes place when all these people who are different, all these different people, they come together. That which is different, diverse, becomes in union. There's the unity even in the diversity. They didn't all become unlike one, uh, themselves. They all remain themselves, but they come together. And it's a picture here that David seems to be celebrating of exactly what Jesus says his church is supposed to be because he's calling people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. He's calling people from every social segment. Sociologists now call those tribes. There's a number of books that are out there that talk about different tribes. There's a book called Tribe Apart that is about the, uh, just the tribe of contemporary teenage culture. There's another one that I read uh, about a year ago that's called Urban Tribes and deals with the different kinds of peoples that you find in any given major city. Tribes is a sociological term that can be sliced in many different directions. It could be based on age, could be based on race, could be based on nationality, could be based on education, could be based on income. There's a diversity, and when David's talking about the tribes, while he has in mind that the 12 tribes of Israel are coming up, we see the contemporary value of the same truth happening because Jesus is calling people all together who are very different, living in different circumstances, and yet they're coming together and are unified in the body of Christ. They are made one. That no matter who you are, no matter what your background, no matter what your station in life, no matter what your situation right now, you belong. And David seems excited about the fact that this is a place where he goes not to get alone with God, just me and God. David is excited that this is a place where different people from different backgrounds with different ideas can come together and be reminded that they are made one because of God's grace and God's provision for them. It's a beautiful thing that David is talking about here. We all need a place where we belong. Sadly, in many churches, people aren't sure that they belong, and there's any number of reasons for that, and I don't have time to go even to illustrate them today. But what I do want to say is what David is revealing should be true of us because everyone wants to belong, whether you've been here for a while and you feel like you are set, this is your place, or whether you are on the fringes and wonder whether you fit. Not only David, but Jesus says the church is the place where you can belong, and we all need to belong. 
saw, I didn't see the movie, but I flipped by a TV channel the other day and I saw it a long time ago, the old movie Twins, you know, Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, those are twins. They, that's the first thing that I think of when I see the two of them. And there's a beautiful scene when Danny DeVito, who's been jaded by life, is just saying, chuck it all. I don't fit. I'm going to just trust myself I'm going to, and continue to go on his own way. Arnold Schwarzenegger, though still somewhat naive because he hasn't spent a lot of time around a lot of people, he says, we are a family. And a family is a place where you belong and where you are always welcome, even when you've been bad. And you see the hardness of the character that Danny DeVito is playing just begin to melt on the borderline of tears. Because that kind of a promise touches the heart of everyone. We all need to belong, no matter how much our culture, our society, our inclination says we want to be Lone Rangers. The Church of Jesus Christ is a family where you always belong even when you've been bad, no matter what you look like, whether you look like the others who are part. See, Jesus, through Peter, Peter poetically talked about us being like living stones, Jesus being the capstone. We're like living stones who have been put together. Different shapes, perhaps slightly different colors that get put together and for purpose to be making a holy temple, a temple for God. And each of us are those stones and we are different, and some are a little more jagged than others. Some are a little rougher. Some are a little more smooth and polished. Some are a little prettier, but it doesn't matter. All of them are being taken and being put together, and that's what God does, is what Jesus has promised. Jesus has said that he is working together. The concept is that of edification. It's a word that gets thrown around a lot in you know, churchy, church-type situations. It's a biblical word. But it actually it rarely gets defined. At least it took me years before I realized, actually, it's not that complicated. You know, a building is called an edifice. So edification is the making of a building. It's exactly the picture that Peter's painting, and that's what seems to be one of David's expectations and celebrations as he realizes he belongs and you belong. David tells us this is a place we're reminded of justice. In verse 5, he says... The thrones for judgment are set there. Now, I don't think I'm breaking any news to you by telling you we live in a broken world. And sometimes as we look about the things that are, are going on, it just seems like there is no justice or justice is extraordinarily warped. And it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's the reality it's common to all cultures, but it's, it just is not the way it's supposed to be. Justice at best seems to be infrequent or inconsistent. And the fact of dissatisfaction of that in your lives testifies to the fact that you have some greater desire and inherent understanding that there is a way things are supposed to be and things are supposed to be just. C.S. Lewis has a beautiful explanation of this in his book, Abolition of Man, when he's saying, look, you want, you know, you think people have making up their own rules. There are certain things that are just absolute. And if you think that they're not, see how you respond when people start taking your stuff or violating things that you believe to be inherent rights. You don't appeal to the legal code of the culture. 
you appeal to it's just right. We live in a world where it's just right is left up to individual discretion and inconsistent adjudication, and it causes frustration, and it causes us to long for more. Now, they were inconsistent, no doubt, because the issue is that we're all broken, we're all fallen, and therefore sin comes in and affects every one of us, and so every culture is broken. David understands that, and there's brokenness even in his old, his, in his old culture. Now, God in his prescription had said, at least in Jerusalem, this is where you're going to put up the thrones of judgment, where the judges were going to sit. Now, Israel was a little different than our particular culture because they were a theocracy. And so, therefore, the judges had both, uh, both civil as well as spiritual oversight uh, of the people. And there was intended to be ruled by God's standard and God's standard alone. There was no pluralism that he was speaking about. But in this scripture, I would say that, uh, as most scholars would recognize, and certainly the writer of Hebrews does, is as this applies to the church, Jerusalem, which is just a city, and a city is just a place where people are gathered together, where they belong. It's a city of peace. The church is a Jerusalem in that sense, or it ought to be, an inadequate, incomplete picture of a place where people gather, where there ought to be peace. And we, as the church, in the New Testament, as God's prescribed, the responsibility of elders is to shape, guide, direct, speak into people's lives, broken and inadequate as we are. But the church is a place where people are supposed to be speaking truth to one another in love and encouraging one another to continually conform to the standard of God, that we would live our lives more and more as those who reflect the reality of the life of Christ and realizing that we're all going to wander, as we sang earlier, and that's why we speak the truth in love to one another, not for the sake of saying, your sin is getting on my nerves, but I want for you to be, have the joy of being like Christ. And so we speak truth to constantly encourage one another. Sometimes asking questions. Do you think that this is consistent? Sometimes being more forceful. It seems to be inconsistent with the faith that you're professing. However it's expressed, the motive is love so that justice can be experienced. And David, as he's saying, look, the, the thrones that are set up in Jerusalem, the authority that is there, just as we ought to see, this is a reminder of the standard of God that God has declared himself both to be just and the judge. And so when we come into the presence of God, we are reminded that while things are not the way they ought to be now, we are reminded that there is a standard and they one day will be the way they ought to be. And to some degree or another, we are seeking to be in conformity to that day, even this day. But it's also related to this. Is I, I decided to break it up, but they, are, they can't really be broken. Well, David is saying there's a sense of, there's a place of justice. And when we come to the church, we are to be reminded of God the judge and what he is doing to bring justice. But David inseparably links that to a place of grace. We're reminded of grace because in verse 5 he says, where the thrones of judgment are set, the thrones of the house of David. Now, again, there are some scholars who would say, well, this was written much later and, and are not taking, you know, belittling the scriptures. But most do believe that it was written by David. David's not setting himself up and rejoicing in his own line. He's not saying, yeah, as long as my house, my kids are in charge, things will be fine. David was well aware of his own frailty, his own brokenness, his own inadequacies. He was also well aware that the house of David, as it was promised to him, while he was blessed, actually pointed to one who was far greater, one who David says, my Lord, a child of his, an ancestor of his to be my Lord, Throughout all of the scriptures, the house of David simply, or the line of David simply points to the reality of the, 
of the coming of Christ. And so in Christ, as David is looking forward to the justice that is going to be met by God, he's also declaring to us the grace that is ours that comes from God as well because he's pointing us to Jesus at this point. We need to realize that justice and mercy kiss at the cross of Christ because the gospel reminds us, and this is what David, I believe, has in mind, that justice was fully poured out on the person of Jesus Christ so that mercy could be poured out on you and me. The gospel is not God just says, ah, forget it. The gospel says there must be justice and God is just and anything that says otherwise is cheap grace. Any kind of belief apart from the gospel saying God loves us as demonstrated in Christ or as I read recently, somebody had, had, I think it was Derek Thomas, made the comment, the gospel is not God loves you, but God loves you at the cost of his own son. Anything less than recognizing that Jesus experienced the justice that we deserve is a cheap gospel, is a cheap grace, and it leads us to think God is just easygoing and is not just. But David, knowing otherwise, is rejoicing because while he wants justice in this broken world, he knows justice must come from God and be paid by God and has been promised by God in the person of Christ, and he alone is our hope. And so when David is saying, I rejoiced in coming, it's because he's looking forward to justice, being reminded of God's standard so that he can be conformed to it, but also being reminded that even as he himself has been unjust, someone will come in order to pay that. It's vitally important that we recognize that because the church is to be the place where we are continually reminded of that glorious truth. Time to time I'm asked why I don't preach more politics or more issue. I haven't been asked by anybody that's in this church. I just give it time. I did receive a call this week, though, from somebody who's not part of our church asking me to come to a luncheon for pastors so that we can rally you to vote in the November elections. I'm going to skip the lunch. I will do what they want, vote in the November elections. Um, See? I can comply, I can play along with others as well. But I will not exchange this pulpit for a political platform. It's not that there's nothing valid in politics because they are the way that our culture happens to run. They are what governs uh, the way that we live out our daily lives. But if I was to exchange this pulpit for a political platform, then who is going to remind us about what is even greater than our present political system? which is justice that is found in Jesus Christ as he has experienced that justice for us and mercy that comes from him so that we understand what love is, which actually is greater than the law itself. There's plenty of people who can proclaim politics to you. Just turn on the radio. Subscribe to a magazine. But any pastor who's willing to give up his pulpit in order to preach politics should have his pulpit stripped from him Because if the pastors are not proclaiming the gospel and reminding you of God's standards, God's justice, God's grace, who's going to tell you? Ann Coulter? Sean Hannity? Might be a nice guy. He's a theological twit. Or people who don't believe in God at all and yet are filling and who have exchanged their pulpits for political platform, left or right. Either way, it's ridiculous. Either way, it's a compromise and a disservice to the people of God. I'm resolved that we, I would proclaim nothing but Christ and him crucified. 
because we are in need and it is far greater. Because despite the pressure that we, mostly as conservative evangelicals, some of you who are conservative evangelical and yet more liberal politically, whoever we are in this church, we need to be aware that both conservatism and liberalism are just false worldviews or counterfeit worldviews or blatant distortions of the gospel. See, the gospel is both conservative and liberal at the same time. The gospel says there is truth. That's what the justice was about. And there is responsibility to the truth, and there's consequences for violating that. All seem to be very conservative kind of principles. God being aware of that, Jesus being aware of that, Jesus came in order to saying that we have violated the standards. He says, here's the remedy. I'm going to pay what you don't have the ability to pay. I'm going to enrich you from my riches, and I'm going to give it to people who don't deserve it. Sounds kind of liberal to me. So the fact of the matter is, conservatism says, oh, I like this justice part. You get what you deserve. And liberal says, oh, I like that mercy part. Just give it away. No standards whatsoever. And the gospel says something entirely different. See, conservatism and liberalism, which is what politics seems to be rooted in these days, takes a portion of the gospel. And some would say, okay, well, the gospel is a compromise. It's a midway point. The gospel is not halfway. The gospel is the way. And religious conservatives and cultural conservatives, religious liberals and religious, uh, or, uh, religious or, well, whoever you are, liberals, conservatives, wherever you are, if that is your primary identity, you are taking a portion of the gospel, building your worldview upon that, and therefore you are denying the reality of Christ. I will not exchange this pulpit, and fortunately for me, Camper shares the same kind of passion. We are reminded in the church of the grace of God that is inseparable from his justice. But we're reminded that his justice was made in Christ, and we have been set free. I know it sounds idealistic. And I know there are those of you who are sitting in this church and are saying, I haven't necessarily always felt like I belong, whether this church or some other church. And I haven't necessarily experienced justice or been reminded of grace. And I will say for that, I'm sorry, both for your past experience and to whatever extent I or we have contributed to that. It's not the way it's supposed to be. I think David sort of gives us a hint that he's pointing to something that is greater and yet is to be tasted here. Even in the last few verses of this passage when he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem and then declares kind of benediction, peace be within your walls. And for my brothers, I, I will seek after this kind of peace. It's the word peace there is actually shalom, which is greater than just simply peace. It's peace, peace with God, the absence of all things that cause conflict. I mean, shalom is a, which is where Jerusalem comes from, which is a city of, of peace. David is saying, I'm going to seek this. And for the benefit of others, I'm going to seek this. In fact, I'm going to pray for this. And he's exhorting us to pray for it too. And what that tells me is that David seems to be aware that while this is the desire and this is the object and this should be the reality, there's something very fragile about that reality in our own experience. 
Otherwise, why have to pray? Why exhort others to pray? The fact that he's saying that I'm going to be praying for this says that while it is my responsibility, and he indicates that, he's motivated by the benefit of others, he's motivated by the glory of God, and he's going to labor, and he tells us it's our responsibility to seek this, he also says pray for it. When somebody's telling you to pray for it, it's a reminder that while it's the way it ought to be, it's beyond your ability to make happen, and we are totally dependent upon God for that to happen. We've experienced it in our own church. We've experienced it in every church that you could ever be a part of, is that while they may aspire and we aspire to be what God is saying that we ought to be, we are inadequate, we are broken, and sooner or later, ugliness rises its head, at least in one relationship or another, and we violate that peace. David's response to us is to say that we are to seek it and we are to be praying for this to be the reality of our lives. We need God to be at work. Relationally, corporately, culturally. Because we need it. And our world needs it. But the fact is God has promised he has delivered in Christ and has promised to ultimately deliver at the time that Christ comes back. Now, my intent is this morning is to show you that David, in his own thought, from his own experience, says that there is good reason to look forward to going to the house of the Lord, to going to church. Some may say, eh, kind of self-serving, isn't it? Yes, I usually feel better when you're here and feel worse if there's nobody here. Um, That has a whole bunch of my own issues. We'll deal with that some other time. But but I don't think it's any more self-serving than the educator who says, look, reading, being able to read, being educated is not only valuable, but it's essential to being able to function in this life. It's no more self-serving than the medical doctor or the dentist who says health and dental health are preferable to the alternative. There's any number of ways that we can look at this. And so there is a sense in which by saying to you that give consideration to what David is saying as to why there's good reason to look forward to and making a priority of being in church. not only for self-serving reasons, it's also for reasons of love for you and a reminder to myself that God has invited us into this situation. Others of you will say, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, we're here. Some of you say, we're always here. Some of you this summer would say, we've been here more than you've been here. So that's, uh, um, well, congratulations. That's good. I don't have anything more to say to you, but uh, you've you've apparently got it. But we are in need. Let me finish with this statement from Eugene Peterson. Worship does not satisfy our hunger for God. It whets our appetite. Our need for God is not taken care of by engaging in worship. It deepens. It overflows the hour hour and a half. It permeates the week. Folks, I don't know what the priority of your life is. If you are a full-timer, 
part-timer, half-timer, first-timer. The promise of God is that when you come expecting, realizing some of the ways in which God is able to meet you, he does so through the ordinary things of being reminded of our brokenness and yet the hope that we have in Christ, being reminded of his glory, whether you feel the tinglies or not. God will meet us here, coming with that expectation, experiencing God's presence, whether sensed or beneath the surface. Shapes our lives, whets our appetite, and gives us access to greater joy. My hope is that you, considering what David says, if it's not already your practice, will now come to understand more of the reasons that David says, I rejoice, and you will join in him when he says, let us come to the house of God together. That when you hear that, it will excite you as much as it excites him. Let me pray. Our Father, we... We are a people who are in need. And you are a God who has provided more than we can possibly fathom. And for those who are gathered here who have tasted and have experienced and who know even better than I know myself how wonderful it is to meet you, gathering with your saints in order that we have an enhanced opportunity or appreciation when we're able to meet you in every aspect of our lives Father, for them, the many that are part of this congregation, I give you thanks. Father, for those who are, have been broken and hurt, whether in life or in the church or both, who are dubious about these claims, I pray that you would break through and help them to taste and see that you are good and that you can be experienced with your people, not only as we worship, but as we live together as community. Father, for those who are, well, just apathetic, I pray that you would tug at their heart, not so much the condemnation or the, the sense of guilt, but just the joy that could be theirs, that they are forsaken. Wherever we are, Father, I pray that you would meet us and open our eyes to the grace that is ours when we walk with you and walk with others who walk with you. May we seek your face and experience your promise that those who seek your face will find you. Bless us, Lord, for we are in need. I pray in Jesus. Amen.